What if instead of sending your clients a report as a PDF from QuickBooks, you could invite them to a suite of interactive reports where they can drill down on any number, gain insights, and easily communicate with you about any report, account, total, or even an individual transaction? What if you could do this for free? Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, Digits, later in the episode. It's just, it's just this disconnect that we have in the accounting profession between the people who are doing the tax and the people who are doing the books. I guess it's sort of the same as like the disconnect between the auditors and the people who do the books too. We put together the financials. Like there's just so much wasted time and energy and effort because we're not aligned on what the client really needs and wants. Coming to you weekly from the OnPay Recording Studio, this is the Cloud Accounting Podcast. Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. Blake, we have so much to do. I feel like we have a double episode because we we miss, we didn't get to all the app news last week and now I piled it up and then there's a bunch of app news this week and I don't know, I feel like I have 25, 40, 50, 60 stories sitting here I'm staring at. I know. And so much good news or bad news, but good <laughs> news to talk about. <laughs> I mean- And this is after you eliminated like, the April Fool's news. Right. Yeah, no, no that. April Fool. There was not much April Fools this year. I'm I'm just looking through my list of stories. IRS paper income tax returns continue to be a major part of the logjam. That was a crazy story. I think I saw. Oh yeah, no nuts nuts story. Like we'll we'll talk about it, but like I guess they're still keying in all the returns. That's how they're processing them. <laughs> there's no. I have. There's three no scanning. To ask you. Okay. Like if we were uh, interviewing you for a job at my accounting firm. Uh-huh. Make sure I hire the best accountant. So I have three questions. Three questions. You. Okay. Well, uh, I hope I, maybe I hope I'd get that job. I don't know. TurboTax. Oh, TurboTax. <laughs> yeah. Is it once that's again under fire for not really being free? I mean, that's what it seems like, right? Free. Yeah. Advertise is more free, of the free, but, free. But nobody actually gets to file for free. Yeah. What's it going to be? You pick. I think we have to go with the IRS first. I, I think okay. like that is the most amazing. Eye-opening story for me. And it has a tech angle, a big tech angle. So yes, absolutely. Let's talk about it. All right. So let's rewind, actually. Okay. As we talked about last episode, the episode before, I filed my 2020 tax return late. TurboTax, well, the IRS wouldn't let TurboTax e-file it, so I had to print it out. Because you weren't willing to wait. envelopes and physically mail it to the IRS. Okay. So what happens to it once the IRS gets it? I never realized this. I didn't know just how antiquated the process is. There's no scanning happening now. Somebody gets the envelope with David well, first Leary's- First it sits in the mail pile for weeks and months. Gets out of yeah, the mail it sits, pile. It sits in a giant container with a bunch of other mail. And then it finally gets opened up. And I'm imagining hundreds of pieces of mail just spilling out onto a floor <laughs> in, a, in an office somewhere. And people just start picking them up, opening up the envelopes. And then what I would do- in my firm is I have a bunch of scanners there and people would start scanning the the paper into some sort of system. Like that's what I did with bills. Right? Especially that was if my... they were tight, if they were printed. Yeah. The numbers yeah. were not handwritten, right? You'd, yeah. you'd OCR it, you'd scan it, you'd try to do something. Well, that's the next thing, right? You'd scan it and then you'd run it through software. Often it comes with the scanner or I don't know, whatever you're using that would then convert the printed ink into digital characters and numbers. And shove it into whatever IRS computer system it needs to be shoved into. Right. And we've been doing this in the cloud accounting world with bills. That's what I used to do this for. I would scan in the bills. Software picks out the important information, like the date, invoice amount, the line item, shoves it into your accounts payable system, and then now you can go process that and get that paid. But even I can go back to like in the 80s when we, we took like standardized tests. And you have to write your first and last name and they give you every box. You got to put a letter in each box, right? Yeah. And that's oh, because yeah, yeah. like the, the computer scantrons. eventually would scan it, right? The scantrons. Right. And, the, and I'm assuming this just has existed for 30 years, not knowing apparently if you want to say what hap- is actually happening at the IRS. Well, okay. So this is according to the IRS National Taxpayer Advocate, Aaron M. Collins. In the latest NTA blog, Collins announced the issuance of a Taxpayer Advocate Directive, TAD, 
urging the IRS to implement machine reading technology, OCR, within the next two filing seasons. There's also a description of the archaic data intake process. Those are not my words. That's Aaron Collins's words. Here, here is how she describes it. I think, I think we should just hear this direct from the taxpayer advocate. The delays in processing these returns result from the IRS's archaic data intake process. The IRS's submission processing function today evokes images of what data transcription looked like in the 1960s, prior to the information age. Employees manually transcribe all paper tax returns. Transcription consists of keystroking every digit and every letter (laughs) on the return. For a moderately complex return, several hundred digits may need to be transcribed. For longer returns with more forms and schedules, the number of digits may approach or exceed 1,000 digits. In the year 2022, this doesn't just seem crazy. It is crazy. And as of March 18th, 2022, the IRS still has 15 million tax returns backlogged from 2020 and 2021 filing seasons. Your return, David, is in that backlog somewhere waiting to be keystroked by somebody (laughs) using technology from the 1960s and 70s. The craziest thing is they they recommended a decade ago, right, that they should start adopting like two-dimensional barcodes because certain states were doing it. So that would be each form has a barcode on it. And then if the IRS scanned the form... The scanner could, the software could figure out what form it is and then pull out the numbers from the appropriate boxes and easily, very easily transcribe those into the system automatically using optical character recognition or OCR. But did you see why they didn't want to adopt that technology? No, I missed that. So the IRS said that they didn't adopt that because they were afraid by making the paper returns more efficient, it would hurt e-filing. And that's around the same time they were kind of tasked to start doing more e-filing. So wait, the logic was if we make the paper return process more efficient. It'll, people won't more be encouraged to e-file as much, right? It, it, might, uh, it might take away our e-file initiatives that we're just now ramping up, right? Right. Around the same time. But my understanding is that there's a lot of stuff you can't e-file. So you still have to paper file often, like... And there's the cases like you had, David, where you wanted to e-file, but you had to paper file because e-file wasn't open. <laughs> or you, I guess you could have waited, but you didn't know any better, right? So, well, TurboTax didn't tell me what I was supposed to do. Right, right. Exactly. A tax preparer, this is the value of a professional in this situation is TurboTax isn't going to tell you. They don't care. They just want you to print the return so they can get their check, right? Interesting. Interesting. It, so it, it, I'm still well, like just mind-boggling because I, I think about... You know, 30 years ago when I was in high school, my mom actually worked as a data data entry person. Like that was her job. Mm-hmm. She was at a check processing place. So like you mail your check to Southwest Gas and this machine would open the envelope and she'd have about a blink of an eye to type in the micro line from the check and the dollar amount and it goes on to the next check, right? Because there's no mm-hmm. OCR, nobody was scanning checks. Right, then. right. And yeah. like, but people are still doing that job at the IRS, obviously. I mean, not for a check, but for I want to meet. I want to meet some of these people. I want to talk to some of these people. Do you think they've been doing the same job for fifty years? Some of them. Is there somebody that started? Yeah, and they're probably super fast at it. They're probably super fast at it. Right, right. But against millions and millions of pieces of paper, can you imagine? Like, like what would the stack look like on your desk? <laughs> like, do you think? Do you think there's a team of people working at computers, and there's just like this massive pile of paper in the like other half of the office just all the time. And you take, can you imagine being on that team where you take off like one return and you go to your desk and there's still just millions of them oh, sitting there? Oh, and you got there? some jerk employee that's like, inbox zero, I'm at inbox zero. Like putting it in everybody's face all the time. Oh, be well, the worst. <laughs> it sort of reminds me of this uh, show Severance I've been watching on Apple TV. It's on my Have list. You... It's on my list. Okay, so I'm not going to ruin anything because uh, it's just the, the meaning... F- the meaningless job they do on the show is scrolling through numbers and trying to find the ones that are frightening. It's, it's some, it's some weird thing they do by feel. It seems like a kind of meaningless time consuming task. And I I feel like that would be the place that people where people do transcription. That's the kind of office they work in. Just a strange 
place. To get back to this, um, analysis by the taxpayer advocate suggests that 50 to 60% of the individual income tax returns submitted on paper over the last two years were prepared with tax return software and would not need to be transcribed if 2D barcodes were added. Basically, they could automate the all this for at least half. Now, I wonder about the other half. Are they not prepared with tax return software? Are people still doing this by hand? I think I told you once, David, about I have a friend who is an engineer and like was still doing his tax returns by hand on paper because he he took pride in being able to figure out how to do it. One of the parents from my kid's soccer a few years back, they relocated from the UK to the States. So they had this huge international multi-residential, and he did it all by hand with the forms and the books and the, and he's a, a professor in the classics, right? Okay. Classics literature. Well, and he did all this by yeah. hand. I was like, this is crazy. I it's guess if like, you can if you can read Latin and Greek, you can probably figure out the instructions <laughs> on the back of one of these tax it. forms, right? Like it's about that comp, it's about that dense. That's where we're at now. That's where you we're at. You have to have a PhD well, to 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 do, utilize the. Well, so then you know, let's talk about what we always talk about, which is then how does the IRS actually modernize? Like, and why haven't they done this? Is it a total incompetence, or is it b underfunding? Or is it A and B together, right? Because I feel like just blaming them for this situation is unfair when for the last decade, their funding has been cut and they've lost people. How do you expect an organization to modernize when they don't have But then what about resources? the tax advocate? What have they been doing for 20 years? If they told them to do this 20 years ago, what, like- well, like that. So the, I, I barely have heard from the tax advocate. We've been doing this show for three and a half years, pushing on four years. We have never talked about the tax advocate until the last like four to six weeks. Right? Yeah, I wonder. Like, like when did when did this office like start to exist? Right? When was it created? Well, uh, obviously yeah. in twenty two thousand and two, because they recommended to switch to the two D barcoding. So it's obviously that old. So that goes back to. The previous annual reports go back to 2000 on their website. So they've been around for a while. Yeah. So but they obviously, they can advocate, but they can't do anything, right? This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Scribe. Like it or not, your firm is probably going to be impacted by the great resignation, which means you'll need to scale both yourself and your staff. But showing the same things to your staff or clients over and over again does not scale. Good thing there is Scribe. Scribe allows you to document your processes, workflows, onboarding, app instructions, help docs, and how-tos by automatically recording your actions as you use your computer. Then Scribe automatically creates easy-to-follow step-by-step visual guides called Scribes that you can share with your staff, coworkers, or clients. You can use Scribe to document processes in cloud apps like QuickBooks and Xero, and with their desktop plugin, you can use Scribe with all your desktop apps as well. Scribe allows you to customize the automatically created Scribes by adding and removing steps, redacting sensitive information, and providing additional comments or instructions. Guides created in Scribe can be shared via a link, a PDF, or embedded directly into a website, or the dozens of other tools that your firm may be using like Notion, SharePoint, Process Street, ClickUp, etc. To try Scribe Pro free for one month by using promo code CLOUDACCOUNTING, Head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash scribe. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash S-C-R-I-B-E. Anyway, we got more to talk about. Let's keep going. Yeah. Uh, so we're, we're talking about tax, on taxes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So we got to talk about TurboTax. You were just mentioning it. Uh, TurboTax. So what's the story about Intuit and TurboTax? So the FTC... So this is the U.S. Federal Trade Commission. For lack of better words, they basically requested that TurboTax and Intuit stop running their commercials. They filed a complaint with the U.S. District Court for Northern California accusing TurboTax owner Intuit of overstating the service's free file option to the point where it considers such marketing a deceptive trade practice, a charge that Intuit promised to vigorously challenge. I mean, and they went on to, to say, quote unquote, the FTC argues, quote unquote, in which almost every spoken word is the word free, end quote. 
And free and free and free and free and free down a better damn free and get free down a damn free and free and here for free 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 for free 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 and get free down a damn get down a damn make it down free for free 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 and free and free and free and free 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 and free here we go it free and free and free free and get free down a damn free it free and here free 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 that's right TurboTax free edition is free 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 free. Well, and so this is true. This is absolutely true, where very few people actually have a simple return. And I experienced this myself when I was right out of college. I had a job where uh, I was, I don't know, I, I can't remember why. Oh, it was something to do with student loan, not student loan, but student student fees. Yeah, if you, I had, it wasn't student loans, but I had um, education expenses that I could get credit for or deduction for or something. And as soon as I ticked that box, I had to pay, <laughs> you know, if you have anything that is complex. So yeah, it's, it's true. Like very few people actually get to use it for free. And then by the time you get to that point and you realize that you've paid with your time and so you don't, you, you don't want it to stop. You, you, you really have no choice. You're in, you're right. Okay. You've, you've, you've typed all the data in. It, yeah, the refund hours. staring you in the face. Yeah. And Intuit's response, again, is like they have been, you know, Martin, this March, hey, the past eight years, they've helped nearly 100 million Americans file their taxes for free. More Americans than ever, than ever have filed for free because of TurboTax and Intuit. So, well, so what I want to know is how many, what percentage of TurboTax users do get to file for free? And especially of those who start thinking they're going to file for free, how many actually file for free? I bet you it's a pretty small percentage. Otherwise, Intuit wouldn't be so profitable, right? So let's see here. 60% growth. So 11 million free filers were in 2018 before Intuit really started their campaign. And in 2021, there were 17 million free filers. And so 17 million free filers in 2021. And and as of last July, it said processed 45 million Fed returns. So 11 out of the 45. No, 17 out of 45. 17 so million. So it was 11 out of in 2018, and now it's 17. Oh. So 38% get to file for free? Approximately. I can see the argument the FTC is making when you know your commercial is like you get to file for free, but close to like it's closer to a third that actually get to do that, like two thirds don't. That could be seen as deceptive, right? You're going to go there first because of the free. Yeah. Right? And then you're, like you said, you're going to start, you find out it's not free. And, but I don't know, how else do you advertise? Do you advertise it like, hey, $19, $49? Well, I don't know. That's what, I think that's what some of the other competitors are trying to do. But well, HR Blocks is pretty, I ran the same thing free return for, they're using the same terminology. Yeah. That sim, simple return, basically, whatever they're calling it, simple return. If I were ta- if I were uh, still in uh, practice, let's see, what would I do as an accounting firm? I just tell everyone it's it's free if you're simple, but <laughs> nothing's ever simple. And then as soon as you start the return, then you charge them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, everybody should just advertise it this way at this at this. Point. Yeah, everyone should do this, right? If Intuit can do it, then I think everybody should. We briefly mentioned the PCAOB, and they had uh, basically insights they've gleaned from their committees. So apparently, they had a committee that kind of got. A little dismantled when the Trump administration came. And now they're getting these committees rolling again. So they had a committee in 2021. And this is 244 of the audit committee chairs at U.S. public companies. And kind of just asking them for their perspective. So they had five insights, right? Ones were concerns with technology. So they're, they're not uniformly positive or bullish regarding the impact of technology on audits. One audit committee chair told the PCAOB, quote unquote, automation can make people lazy, which is why checks and balances are essential as automation becomes more prevalent. Automation can make people lazy. (laughs) I mean, that's one way to look at it for sure. It doesn't surprise me that that's an audit chair saying that. Automation, you know what? Actually, that's totally, it's totally the wrong view. It's totally... It's totally somebody who doesn't understand automation saying that because automation is harder than not automating. Not automating is doing what the IRS is doing and just doing the same process for 
50 years. That's easy. That's really easy to do. It takes no brain power. Sure, it takes a lot of time, but it's not hard. And then some of the other things were just very obvious, like ESG is on the radar, obviously. We just talked about this last week with the SEC possibly recommending uh, ESG guidelines and reporting. Mm-hmm. So this is on their, their radar. Um, hot accounting issues, your favorite of all, Goodwill. Yeah. Right? So, what so about they're, it? they spend time on it, but it doesn't, it's like they're consuming their time. Goodwill, revenue rec, credit losses, the lease standards, but it's not really, this is just them complaining about it in a way, right? There's not really any activity happening for them. Apparently COVID-19 still is uh, causing problems with audit. Really? Going concern assessments, relevant disclosures, liquidity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just still causing a risk assessment problems. And then the area for improvement, which was kind of funny, quote unquote, more than any other factor, audit committee chairs indicated that their satisfaction with the auditor's work is driven large part by a comprehensive, timely communication. Like, <laughs> I don't even know if this is an insight. Kind of comprehensive, comprehensive, timely communication is what drives value. In the audit or their satisfaction? Oh, their satisfaction. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. These are these are mind bombs you're dropping here, David. Blowing my this, mind. But this is, I mean, well, this they got to publish something, right? These so are 244 audit committee chairs, right? At U.S. Yeah. public companies, like these are, in theory, really smart people. Yeah. This um, is the summary of their thoughts. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Nothing new has come out of audit for how long? When was the last thing anything new or interesting happened? And like you said, all these issues that we are talking about in the world of Gap or FASB, like nobody else cares. Nobody cares about lease accounting outside of accounting. We gave their insights. Their five insights. <laughs> all right. Did you see the latest possible bill about the digital U.S. digital dollar? Well, the CBDC. What about it? Where are we with it? So essentially. The current bill is already starting down a path that it won't be built on blockchain. Well, so there's a there's a bill. There's like a law. Because as far as I knew, it was just a directive from the president saying, let's go look into this. Yes. So so that is happening. But in the meantime, people are starting to create laws that are going to cover this, even though it doesn't exist yet. Right. So this is um, Patrick Lynch. He's a Democrat from Massachusetts and four Democratic colleagues announced, quote unquote, Electronic Currency and Secure Hardware Act. It's called the eCash Act on March 28th. And a lot of it is trying to, you know, the fraud and stop fraud and those types of things that we already kind of have rules around. But they are proposing in this is that it w- should not be built on blockchain. What, that what should not be built on blockchain? The new digital currency. Oh, okay. Based on the test, though, so um, the Boston Fed worked with MIT's Digital Currency Initiative, and they actually found out that blockchain just may not be fast enough or scalable enough anyways to do the CBDC. Not even a private blockchain? Correct. But they do Uh, think the winning solution did have a distributed uh, ledger. A distributed ledger, but not necessarily a blockchain. Correct. So, you know... It's it's just interesting that we're already seeing laws being passed on what's going to govern this when mm-hmm. it's still in the let's look into it phase. Oh, it's not passed, sorry. What laws being proposed? This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Digits. Digits is building accounting tools so powerful that you'll think they're from the future. In collaboration with hundreds of firms, Digits has been thought through and built from the ground up. Their latest project. Digit Reports can generate all your clients' monthly reports all at the same time with just one click. These reports aren't your typical boring static PDF reports. They're beautiful, interactive, and alive with the latest data. Using Digits is easy. You just connect it to QuickBooks. About 24 hours later, all your data will be fully analyzed, then can begin generating reports, automatically create executive summaries, and start having those much-needed high-value advisory discussions with clients either face-to-face or using the built-in chat features. And in case Digit Reports isn't enough, Digits also offers Digit Search, which you can use to quickly find and navigate directly to transactions inside of QuickBooks Online. To learn more about Digits and sign up for free, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash digits. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash D-I-G-I-T-S. Digits, finance from the future. 
So we got some voice messages. Shall we listen to those? Yeah, let's jump in. Then we'll come back to all this. So this first one is from Ryan Piercy over in the UK. Hi, David and Blake. This is Ryan Piercy from the Digitals and the Cruel World podcast over in the UK. Just listening to your last pods and found it very interesting that you were delving into the audit of Tether and it being done by MHA Cayman. Um, there's a subsidiary of MHA McIntyre Hudson over in the UK because I used to work there as an auditor over three years ago. And I believe the Cayman entity was set up back then. When you talk about them doing the audit, there is a chance that they um, subcontracted a lot of the work to MHA McIntyre Hudson because I believe that was something they were looking to do. But yeah, I, I, I don't think that um, I have any more details apart from very small world and found it very interesting. Really love the pod. We'll continue listening. Thanks, Ryan. I thought he was going to give us something juicy. <laughs> well, so that's, that's Ryan Piercy. And uh, do take a listen to his podcast. The thing about being in a professional services firm or you know a bit, a, a, an accounting firm is that in a lot of ways, they're just offices with the same logo on them. And you could have them all over the place. And you you don't really know any of these people, right? Like <laughs> that are that are in these different offices, right? You all just share the same brand, and so you, you do wonder with Tether the situation that we were talking about that's so strange is that they're like eighty two billion dollars. They're an eighty two billion dollar Bitcoin bank, or not Bitcoin, a crypto bank, a stablecoin. And when you search for their auditor on LinkedIn, the the folks that signed off on their most recent attestation it's like three people and so you wonder like how is this possible 82 billion dollars automation like tiny little yeah automation <laughs> or you know it's just three people who happen to be affiliated right like the subcontracted out or who knows what like who knows who these people are so anyway um on that note uh, there was another story about tether this week actually just today in the wall street journal at least i saw it today let's see was it yeah, April 3rd. So today, it was in the Wall Street Journal. So this is starting to hit main, uh, not Main Street, Wall Street consciousness. When it gets into the Wall Street Journal, the headline is, Short Sellers Bet Tether, Crypto's Central Bank is Vulnerable to a Run. So apparently there's folks who are now short selling Tether, thinking that maybe they aren't as liquid as they are, which is the stuff we've been talking about. Where We don't really know what their assets are that are backing these tethers, which are supposed to be backed one-to-one with the US dollar. Let's say they're not as liquid as they claim to be, or maybe some of these assets don't exist. That could be a run on the bank, basically. And and totally... Wipe them out, 100%. And it could wipe out a lot of crypto because people don't realize this, but yes, the market cap is large, but that's just just the, the latest values of what people have paid for crypto. It doesn't mean there's that much liquidity and liquidity is how much, how much money is there in the system? If a big chunk of that money that's actually being passed back and forth for trades disappears, there's a run on the bank, right? Then that could lock up the markets and then values could plummet. Like that's how a bank run can cause problems. Right? So, uh, that's, that's, that's why I don't invest in this kind of stuff because, it doesn't look right. There's just something not quite right about it. But on the other side, there's a lot of people making a lot of money and have been making a lot of money for a long time. And so far it hasn't been a problem, but like, can't you see this? This could be, this to me feels like the people made money on beanie babies for a long time. Yeah. Or or mortgages, you know? (laughs) So like this to me feels like the, the weak point, right. Of the entire crypto market is, is these stable coins that are not regulated and they have very little, oversight and who knows who these auditors really are and yeah anyway well speaking of crypto one more thing here so uh this is kind of a crazy story and i can't say i understand it but hackers stole 600 million dollars in crypto from a blockchain network it's called ronin as soon as i heard that story i thought of you actually i'll be honest <laughs> i heard that i was like yeah but i'll do some for the show well okay so the ronin network the reason i love this is because it's not just crypto but it's also video games so apparently there's a Crypto, there's a blockchain network called Ronin that's connected to video games, an online video game called Axie Infinity, where players collect and breed virtual pets called Axies 
usually to battle them against each other, a la Pokemon and other properties. So David, you said Beanie Babies, right? Yeah. This is this is digital Beanie Babies. After paying an initial startup cost, players earn in-game currency that can be then be sold on the company's marketplace for Ethereum tokens. The Ronin network is what linked the game to the company's blockchain. And I guess the network was compromised and 173,600 Ethereum and 25.5 million in USDC, the non-tether uh, stablecoin, the one that's legit, right? USDC uh, was stolen. And normally, normally there would be like protections, internal controls against this. But apparently, as the game was scaling up, the developers bypassed the internal controls they should have had in place in order to allow, I don't know, some another app to come in. It was like an API thing, right? They needed to like open this thing up to make things happen. And they just opened up the doors too wide. Wow. Yeah. So did say how many people were affected? I'm trying to get a feel of like how many people are playing this game and the money involved. Yeah, I don't see that's I don't where's the money come from to begin with? Well, so like people, nobody's just gonna set up this game in this world and you get rewarded money well, for playing okay. this game. So do people pay to play this game? Do they buy add-ons they, for their pets? And that's how they do. So you pay to play, right? You 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 put money in to play, and then you can buy and sell these characters. These, you know, you can collect them. Okay. But that doesn't mean 600 million was put into it. It just means that's the current value. So like, right, you know, how much money has actually been invested in it? I don't know. But at least 25.5 million in USDC. Just gone. Don't know. It's one of those things where you try to read about like what exactly happened and it's complete gobbledygook. It's all like complete, you know, it's, it might as well be like Star Trek, uh, you know, techno babble or worse. And that's like, that's what is funny to me about the whole idea that cryptocurrency is going to liberate us from the tyranny of our existing financial system, which is overly complex, overly complex, because you're just trading one complexity for another, right? We're trading financial complexity, the the crap that banks do and all that stuff, traditional banks do with the blockchain, which is just as difficult to understand, if not more difficult, right? It's not making anything clearer. And so you, you end up having to trust people, right? The whole idea that, that crypto eliminates the need for trust is, is totally false because you still have to trust the people who developed the code, the people who wrote the code, right? And even, the, even other programmers, they can't like read all of the code. You have to trust people. So it's not one of the promises of crypto. Anyway. Yeah, because it doesn't have... In- I don't know if it was Planet Money or if it was um, Planet Money's uh, other podcast, The Indicator, and they were t- and basically traced basically currency, if you want to call it that, in Russia post the crash of the USSR, mm-hmm. right to modern day, and it literally first for a while was bricks, like people would pile up bricks because bricks you could count them, like bricks had a utility, and then it evolved into some other things and other things like leather and shoes and like people would start kind of almost like a big barter economy. But then it eventually evolved into um, gasoline coupons or gallons or tickets or promise notes or something around gas and oil, right? And then eventually it was standardized, blah, blah, blah. But but every single iteration of this, it was based on something that had value, like real value. That had utility. Utility, yeah. Yeah, you could do something with it, yes. But then going by that logic, our fiat money, (laughs) does does ours have utility i mean it does because it's strong but it's still i can't battle i can't put my 20 dollars up against your 20 dollars and have it battle in a fictional pokemon style game although i guess that's what you know sports betting is right (laughs) that's what we do so india is trying to get things ducks in order um if you recall this i covered this probably in like 2021 was two years ago, one year ago. So last March, India, this is the Corporate Affairs Ministry, which is abbreviated MCA, like different order than the words, but it's a little confusing. They made a rule that all even small and mid-sized companies could only use accounting software that had audit trail features. I think you mentioned this. And that they had to be turned on, right? 
because it, it could not be turned off. Like it had to be on. And they also have to have an edit log of each change made to the books with proper dates, right? Mm-hmm. But this requirement first was going to be April 1st, 2021. Then they said it was April 21st, 2022. And now they deferred it again to April 1st of 2023. Um, and then the argument is, it's just too hard for small businesses to scale and switch to this. Now I have a question for you. Does Zero have an audit trail? Yeah. Yeah, I does, don't know. Right? I couldn't tell you off the top of my head how far back it goes or anything about that. But yeah, you can click into a transaction and see who changed what. So, so, so I think. QuickBooks has had it since as long as I can remember. Like, Who's making accounting software that doesn't have audit trails? <laughs> Probably, you know, solutions all over the world that are not standard, right? Or not ones that we're familiar with. Yeah. So, so they're trying, right, to get some control over things and it just yeah. keeps getting delayed though. Yeah. What else we got here? Want to play a game? Want to play a game? Yeah, sure. It's not really a game, but uh, so <laughs> I want to ask you three you questions. Me. Like we're in you a job interview. All right, so, oh, so there's an so, article. Wait, you tell me you want to play a game. It turns out it's a job interview. A job okay. interview. Thank Okay, so great. Yeah. To, to ask these three interview questions to hire the best accountant for your firm. So this is an article that was in Bloomberg Tax. Okay. First question, how do you manage your personal finances? I have maintained my personal finances for, I think, 10 years now in zero. So I have I have full balance sheet income statement, statement of cash flows, financial statements for the Oliver family household. Oh, that's a good answer because that means that you have experience, you're organized, you can articulate your financial situation, which means you'll be able to do that with clients. If you would have said, well, ah, just yeah, go to the ATM and see what's in there. Like, <laughs> well, that would be, that idea. would generally, yeah, that would generally be like not the best thing. Although I know most people don't do this, what I do, like, because it is a lot of work. And I don't know if I really, like, I don't really, like, I like being able to look at my annual financials and, like, do a comparison, and I can see it trended over all the years. But, like, it doesn't actually help me. It's a hobby. It's, it, <laughs> well, so the thing, and the problem, actually, I had was it's so difficult to budget in Zero, but also in QuickBooks, like, to actually use the budgeting that I couldn't figure out how to do it with my wife as a budget. So we use uh, You Need a Budget as well. So I actually do the accounting twice. I do it in zero for myself, and then I do it in YNAB. You need a budget, which is just a simple personal budgeting. Right. So, so this is good. You, I'm, I'm excited about the interview. We're going to continue on, sir. Okay. I, All I right. Be hearing you. So, next question: If you had enough money to buy a car outright, would you do it or would you finance it instead? Uh, so I actually have to make this decision because I have a lease that is coming due. And we already did the lease extension because we just couldn't handle the timing was just not good. We couldn't figure out how to get a new car. And like even the thought of trying to get a new car right now just gives me hives. So I have to decide in like three months what to do. And um, I'm not totally I'm not totally sure what we're gonna do. Uh, but I think yeah, I think I'd it would depend on the interest rate, right? So if the interest rate is low, then usually the best bet is just to finance it. I don't know. Was that the right answer? That's the right answer. It's really to assess your risk, right? If you say, yeah. hey, I would just pay for it cash and I'm done. Maybe you're kind of a little risk averse, lower risk tolerance versus like you said, okay, maybe if the interest rate's low enough, I'll just finance it and then I'll invest my money somewhere else. I'll put my money to work somewhere else. If you can earn a better rate of return, if you can earn more than you're paying in interest, then yeah, you should, right? Generally. But it feels and that's like why right you should pay off. Used cars are going up in value. Yeah. Like, <laughs> You might get your best return on a used car, just buying and selling it. All right. Third question. Are you ready for your third question? Yes. All right. If you could have had your previous boss's position, what would you have done differently to manage someone in your shoes today? And you could go back to when you worked at a big firm. I don't care. Makes well, okay. Right. So so my, I think my complaint about all the jobs where I've been unhappy, it's been the same. It has been responsibility without authority. Meaning I am a manager and I'm responsible for the work of others, but I don't have the authority to hire or fire them. And, and this is the classic middle manager problem. And I don't have my own PL. I don't have a budget. It's having to ask for everything. 
not having the ability to do anything meaningful on your own. And just supposed, you're supposed to manage clients and manage staff without the resources or the freedom. So that's what I've always looked for, I guess. I've never, I've, I've, maybe I've done a terrible job of looking for it. I find that that's actually why I'm very happy running my own business because then I have the authority and, you know, it's my responsibility. So. And I don't think there's a right or wrong answer on this one, but it really, it's a way to detect. It'll show your management style preferences. Yeah. It'll, it'll reveal your work style. Right. And then the value in teamwork, the freedom to choose your working situations and company culture, how like you want to be managed. So it's just, a, but these are just three questions you should ask if you're trying to hire an accountant. Where did you find those? That was in uh, an article in Bloomberg Tax. And you can also find it in the show notes of the Cloud Accounting Podcast. Who wrote it? I, I thought I like those questions a lot. This was his name. Where is his name in this article? He's the CEO and founder of CMA Exam Academy. Okay. His name is Nathan Liao, L-I-A-O. He's a CMA and CMA coach. He mentors accounting and finance professionals in more than 80 countries. Did you hear about the former School of Medicine administrator who pled guilty to stealing $40 million from Yale? I saw this on Twitter. Yes. Jamie Patrone Codrington pled guilty in Hartford Federal Court. She was arrested by criminal complaint on September 3rd, released on a $1 million bond pending sentencing. This goes way back. In 2008, she was employed by the Yale School of Medicine's Department of Emergency Medicine and most recently has served as the Director of Finance and Administration for the department. The way that she stole $40 million was really simple. I guess none of these frauds are really simple, but this one was actually quite elegant. She had the authority to make and authorize purchases for up to $10,000 for departmental needs without any further review. I don't know if that's no is that is that normal? So I'm I'm ex professor, I have a lab and I'm like, "Hey, I need some PCs for my lab." I would go to her, she's like, "I'm authorized to do this. Let's order your PCs." He gives PCs, everybody's happy. I guess so. But what so, she was doing, she was just ordering the PCs randomly, right? And putting them in the back of so, her car. So yeah, she was ordering computers. And then I'm not sure if they were shipped directly to her all the time. I mean, I guess laptops, right? You could order a lot of, you could order like a handful of laptops for well, up to $10,000. Somebody anonymously reported that she was putting equipment that just came in in her back of her car. So she would order the computers, they would come to the office, and then she would put them in her car and then take them to an out of state. It was specifically identified as out of state, an out of state business that then resold the computer equipment and gave her a cut. And well, apparently the people reselling it did not know. They were writing checks to whatever her entertainment company or whatever the hell it was huh. called. She created this other LLC. And she never filed tax returns for this. So she owes the uh, US Treasury $6 million. <laughs> she pled guilty to one count of wire fraud and one count of filing a false tax return. It's always the taxes that get you, right? That's what always gets people. But apparently, like she and was too many being... nice cars. Well, so I'm wondering, like, how many of these purchases do you have to make? I think it was 10 years, right? So $4 million a year divided by 10,000, 400 orders a year. How does, how does nobody notice this? I know the Yale's a big place. Every day for a decade. Right? So she was ordering... more, than one, more than one order a day. For a decade, oh, there's no driving it. There's away? no coworkers noticing the deliveries from UPS. Like nobody's well, questioning. I I, well, so I don't know. I was browsing like the Reddit or Twitter thread or something on this, and there were there were people in there, accountants in there, saying, you know, like this doesn't make sense because with this much equipment, like that has to get capitalized and depreciated, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, where, Usually, where an IT department would inventory it because right, yeah. <laughs> Where was the inventory control on this? Where was the like where were people asking for where all these computers? I mean, that's a lot of computers, right? $40 million worth of computers and hardware. So Is there just that much money, stupid money hanging around at Yale? Well, somebody also pointed out, I don't know if this is true or not, but that like the $40 million represented like 0.3% of the budget. 
of for that Yale department of or all of Yale. I think Yale School of Medicine or something like that. Okay. So basically, like it's it's like in the big scheme of things, four million dollars a year is like a rounding error for them. You know, like I mean, but at the same time, you wonder like why why can't audits find this stuff? If you ran all the transactions for this department through a computer system that was trained to like detect it, it should find this. Like this seems suspicious, right? If you saw all these transactions to the same. Right, you'd be well, wondering, okay, well, where's the computer? If somebody equipment? did a physical inventory of the IT assets, right? Like we're missing three hundred, we're missing a thousand computers. If, if you probably three computers, no. How many computers can you buy for ten grand a day? I mean, you know, if these are expensive, right? Let's say they're two thousand each. So you got five but, computers coming in every day. So if somebody did an IT audit. They'd be, we're missing fifteen hundred computers. I don't know. <laughs> like it doesn't. I mean, it just doesn't make. It any would sense. be like twenty thousand, right? Like yeah. or wait, no, it would be four hundred times five, so two thousand, two thousand computers. <laughs> where, are, where, are, where are the two thousand computers that we ordered this year? And then what about the real computers? Because these departments are probably still asking to get real computers. Yeah, I don't. I, I mean, they probably ordered those in, in bigger orders, right? I don't know. Just amazing, and and, and I just understand like. Is that normal for somebody at this level to have ten thousand dollar purchase approval with no, no secondary approval, no review? Like, not, like that just seems like nuts that you would do that. In the meantime, anyway, like, we, we've, so, we've worked with big, huge, gigantic tech companies. I'm not going to name them that have sponsored the podcast, and the hoops they have to jump through to write us a check for two grand <laughs> one time. It's like oh, insane. I know, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pur- purchase order numbers, all that stuff. So I anyway. got a transition article if you want to do that to get into app news, or did you have any other regular news? Well, we've been talking about app news, haven't we? We kind of, yeah. So sort of. Well, oh, wait, wait, hold on. We got another voicemail. I have to get oh, to perfect. it. Oh, perfect. And then we'll then we'll go to wherever you want. Uh, so this is an email actually sent by Tony, and it it's relating to our uh, coverage or or the the voicemail re- we received from Nicole. This is sort of like a reply to that from Tony. Let's listen feedback on listening to your episode today. My big goal as a small business accountant operating in the real world is not to do a correct financial report on an M1 reconciliation to satisfy a bookkeeper, but rather to have my clients meet their legal obligations with the least amount of hassle and expense. On a list of top 100 worries for a small business owner today, this doesn't even make mention. Clients couldn't care less about accrual to cash reconciliation. Thanks for your great contribution to the industry. Regards, Tony. If you plan to use the comment on the show, then I should add, my comment was focused micro-businesses, my own client base, who tend to believe that bookkeeping is only for tax compliance, is only an overhead expense, and has no other intrinsic value. So that was Tony replying to Nicole. And uh, to refresh everyone's memory, Nicole McKenzie sent in a voice message about how she wishes that more tax preparers would do a proper accrual to cash conversion for the tax return using a Schedule M1 reconciliation. And that's because she does gap financials, accrual basis financials for her startup clients and has that issue with the tax preparers, like asking for cash basis financials. She's just saying, why can't they do the accrual to cash conversion and do this properly, which is what you should do. And then Tony is replying saying, well, my clients couldn't care less about that. What they care about is getting the taxes done. You know, we don't need to do this crap. And what I love about this is that they're both totally right. <laughs> Nicole is right and Tony is right. And it also depends on who the customer is and what they want. So in Tony's case, he's talking about mostly micro businesses, smaller businesses, that they only need the bookkeeping done to get the taxes done. And for them, that's what they need. So the books should be done on a cash basis. And the taxes should agree, like the book should be done for tax, tax books. And in Nicole's case, she has these clients that need the accrual financials. That doesn't work, right? They, and the, this is all just miscommunication between people doing the bookkeeping and doing the books and the folks doing the tax. And I experienced this myself. And this is why I think the firms that can do both are going to win because when you have the people who are doing the books aligned and like on the same team or functioning as being on the same team as the people doing the tax, you can save a lot of time because you're not doing all this unnecessary work you might be doing or having these disagreements that you might be having. And 
Solving for the client properly. Solving for the client need. Because maybe you're over bookkeeping people who only really need cash, cash tax report out the door. Yes. yes. Maybe you're, you're doing too much bookkeeping for those folks. Right. Yeah. Like if that's all they need, if that's what they want. And maybe we should ask the clients too. I actually love the idea of having different tiers. And you see this on some of the modern subscription-based firms out there. You'll see the lowest tier on their offering is a just cash, cash basis books to do your taxes. And that's what a lot of firms are focusing on. And even though it's low margin, you can do a lot of volume and you can standardize that and you can do a great job with it. And that's what all these these startups are doing. A lot of yeah. these startups are going after that freelancers, the yep. um, collective, all these ones. Like, hey, you're, you're a freelancer, you're making 120000 a year. We're going to do X for you because mm-hmm. you really need us, but you also don't need bookkeeping, real bookkeeping. You just need enough to get your taxes done. So they're doing bank feed, cash-based accounting for them. And I'm willing to bet that's what 95% of QuickBooks Live is, just bank feed, cash basis, put stuff into the standard chart of accounts kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. But but again, like they're both right, It but it depends on the needs of the client. So yeah. in Nicole's case, her clients need the accrual. The tax people should be talking to Nicole and doing the proper conversion and, and sending in the adjusting entries that make sense for accrual books. And then in the, in the other case, right, Tony's totally right for his clients. And it's just, it's just this disconnect that we have in the accounting profession between the people who are doing the tax and the people who are doing the books. I guess it's sort of the same as like the disconnect between the auditors and the people who do the books too, who put together the financials. Like there's just so much wasted time and energy and effort because we're not aligned on what the client really needs and wants. What, what else do we have today? To so I know, it's a long article, so we don't have to talk about the details of it. But it's a, basically, it's an article about the early days of Zero, Because Zero is essentially on their 15th anniversary now, I think. And uh, didn't Craig Walker just announce his retirement? I saw that as well. He's like one of the original Zeros, one of the first seven. Yeah, he was one of the first six. Yep. He, they they, he they created the first a company code, called Accounting right? 2.0. He wrote the code for Zero, like when they were around a kitchen table. Kind of similar stories to the founding of QuickBooks, actually. And it was just a different time and place, right? If you read this article, the craziest thing is 11 months from putting money into the venture, it was listed on the New New Zealand Zealand Stock Exchange. Exchange. That was very, very strange and unusual, right? Something that would probably only ever happen in New Zealand. But no, I mean, I mean, you go back in time to uh, Firefox or Netscape back in the day. Like companies would only, they, they would IPO pretty fast. Now nobody wants to. You wouldn't have this round after round after round after round after round after round, right? And you know, what, what's Stripe? Stripe's like $35 billion valuation or wherever they are, right? Yeah. But it, it's a long, it's a long form read. It's in a, it's an online magazine out of New Zealand or Australia, New Zealand called Stuff. So it'll be in the show notes, but it's worth reading. It's, it's kind of, it's interesting to read. I don't yeah. know. I'm kind of nerd. I like the history well, of stuff like this. What I like about it is that Zero is like a national treasure in New Zealand. It's a hero because by going public so early and giving people the ability to buy into this, like they made a lot of people rich in New Zealand and not yeah. just VCs. Like people who just thought this was a good idea got really, really wealthy. And it's kind of a shame that in the US, it's so expensive to be a public company. There's so much hassle and regulation around it that nobody wants to do it. And you avoid it as long as possible. And the effect of that is it puts investing out of reach of most people. Like there's no there's no point in picking stocks. You might as well just put all your money in index funds because all the really good opportunities are not public companies. They're all private. Yeah, because by the time by the time one of these companies go public, there's been so much investors already that you, you're not getting in at, at ground right. floor versus the way you could have bought Netscape stock for cheap. Right. Yeah. But th- th- that dream is kind of gone of like, I'll buy stock and it's going to go up. This is why all this money's going to Bitcoin and all these other things. Because <laughs> exactly. you can't do it in the stock market anymore. The stock market, you can't you can't make money in the stock market. So you got to make money on crypto. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so that one will uh, be in the, the show notes. I don't know. I have so many other ones. Um, we can talk about. Well, we um, don't have that much time left, so you got to pick. I'm we go fast. All right. Pick, so, Bill, well, just yeah. Either give me the rundown or pick one to like focus on. All right. So, Builder AI, they raised a hundred million dollars, 
Um, Builder AI is like automation, uh, no code software. And what's interesting about this is they, um, it's not like middleman, like software in the same way as Zapier is like connect this app, then do this and then do this, but you can actually build a real full blown app on it. And they have like 600 modules in there. Wow. So if you're like, oh, I need, like, maybe you could have built Earmark on this. Maybe it's got your billing platform and it's got mm-hmm. your a podcast hosting. I don't know what else is in it, but it's all these building blocks. But I thought that was interesting. And they um, currently they said they have, oh, they, they had 300% growth last year. Well, here's a quick one. This was a VentureBeat article featuring Trulian about how they're applying AI to accounting workflows. And there's some stats in here that I just uh, thought were pretty incredible. The size of the accounting software market is projected to reach 22.9 billion, 22.9 billion by 2027. So in five years, that's up from 14.2 billion in 2020. So in seven years, you're going from 14 billion to like 23 billion. That's at a compound annual growth rate of 7.1% during the forecast period. So pretty strong growth for accounting software. Good time. And uh, this was related to a story about Trulian, which just raised their Series A, 15 million Series A in February. And they do lease accounting software. So even though I think that lease accounting, like nobody really cares about it outside of accounting, obviously it's a big deal and it's a lot of work. And so companies like Trulian and all these other lease accounting companies are going to come in and they're going to capture a ton of value because you can't throw people at it. Can't solve the problem with people. You got to have software to do it. Can't hire people. Don't have enough people. Finally, the SMB back office automation platform raises 95 million. And you might be somewhat familiar with this. They used to be called back office ops. Is that correct? That sounds right. It was back office something. Maybe backoffice.co or back office. So they rebranded and relaunched. Yeah, they were formerly known as Back Office. You're right. Just Back Office just, by itself. Just Back yeah. Office. And yeah. they were, you could argue it's a another one of these bookkeeping firms with engineers, but now what they're doing is they're launching their own debit card or credit card type offering. And, you know, to, well, it's going to download transactions, expense type purchasing product. And so some of this financing is to supply the debt equity for, for that card, that offering. But it also makes sense. We've talked about this, right? If you're doing the bookkeeping, you... If you can control the spend card, it's just going to help you automate and do bookkeeping easier. Mm-hmm. If you can control all the data and hence into it getting into their bank, you know, if you if you control the bank and you do the bookkeeping, it's going to be easier to do bookkeep, the bookkeeping. So they took that raise. I'm looking at the uh, website for finally, finally.com. And they've got some crazy uh, big logos on their website, Allstate, Mobile, Parkfield, Sylvan Learning, Signal 88 Security, Ovation. Probably at franchises. What do they, well, what do you mean at franchises? Well, like you said it was Allstate? Oh, yeah, Allstate, for Allstate offices. Offices, right? And, the individual and, offices, franchises, like probably, And mobile yeah. gas stations. <laughs> they got me. Sylvan Learning franchises. David, I didn't even think of that. So if you go to the pricing, they've got Starter Pro and Premium. They offer a lot of stuff, uh, but the all-in-one, all-in-one accounting solution starter is eighty-nine dollars per month. Includes automated bookkeeping, up to two linked financial accounts, quarterly reports, bill pay management, cash-based accounting, tax calendar, expense tool, payment processing, and invoicing DIY, create and send. So I, I, I wonder what that bill pay management means. Eighty-nine dollars a month is pretty darn cheap, although they do bill annually. You can also just buy stuff a la carte. Like you could just buy invoicing. You could just buy their corporate card. You could just get expense management. Which of course you would always, if you you have a suite of services and you have other things to sell people, you'd always let them buy a la carte so you could sell your other stuff to them, right? (laughs) That's true. I guess that's true. Pro and premium, you have to call to get a price. There is no pricing for anything other than that. And that's how you get the cruel. Accrual accounting is pro or premium. So some bad tech news that came out this week. Uh-oh, what's that? So there's a, a checkout software called Bolt that exists. Um, people would use it sometimes maybe in the 
as your uh, checkout on your website, and maybe you wouldn't use Stripe, right? You would mm-hmm. use Bolt. So Stripe invested in another com- a competitor to Bolt called Fast. You know, everybody in the original names here. And Fast, apparently, there was an article that came out this week. They only had $600,000 in revenue in 2021. Last January of 2021, they, they raised $102 million in their Series B, led by Stripe. Then a year later in the year, last year, in 2021, they tried to do another, raise another $100 million, and nobody wanted to take it. So they, they didn't raise any money for their Series C. They've hired 400 employees last year, and they're bringing about $10 million a month, but they really only have about $50,000 in revenue a month. Wait, wait. They're spending ten million a month. Ten million, and then a fifty thousand dollars revenue. What? What is this? What does the company do? It's a one-click checkout for mer- online merchants. Oh, so it's well, like they're a, not going to be around for very long if, if that's the case, right? Yeah, and then to complicate it, apparently their founder, he uh, already had a a startup before this in Australia called tow.com.au. It was going to be the Uber of towing. And apparently it failed. It was quote unquote as a disaster. And there's this big, um, it's an elite multi-million dollar billing dispute with the Australian state government over towing and impounding fees that basically caused the whole startup to liquidate in 2018. So you have this startup that's being mismanaged, right? It's not nearly as effective. Apparently Bolt, their revenue was 50X that number, uh. right? And so then you have a questionable founder. So we'll have to keep an eye on this because it feels like mm. the- this is uh, falling apart a little bit. Well, David, I think that's all the time we have today. If folks want to get in touch with you online, where should they do that? I'm on all the socials, just at David Leary. I am at Blake T. Oliver. Send me an email. Send me a voicemail if you like. Blake at BlakeOliver.com. We love hearing from our listeners, and we will likely play your message on the air. And if you want to get CPE credit for listening to this episode and many other episodes of the Cloud Accounting Podcast and many of your favorite accounting and tax podcasts, download my app, earmarkcpe.com. EarmarkCPE is available in the Apple App Store, on the Google Play Store. I kid you not, you can get an hour of CPE in five minutes if you already listened to this episode. The courses come out about a week after each episode drops. You open the app, find the course, take the quiz, get your credit. It has so never if I listen so to this easy. episode and I just heard you talk about this, yeah. I have to go download the app and I just take the quiz and get CP credit for the episode I just am listening to right now. Yeah. Like if you, so if they hit you, pause and go download it. You you just spent an hour of your life listening to this episode. If you need CPE, why not get credit? Yeah. Go download the app. Now again, Seems easy. it takes us takes us about a week to get the uh, course up. So if it hasn't been a week yet since this episode came out, just wait until next week. Right, just press pause. Yeah, but, <laughs> check but it, again, hey, and check again. You pr- if you listen to last week's episode, that one's probably up now or the week before, right? So, you know, we're, get, we're, we're working on ways to notify you, send you like a push message when the latest episode is up for credit. And uh, yeah, we actually broke the app, David. We broke the app this week. I, th- I should have covered that in the news. Your I mark know, was right? down. Your mark, was, Your mark down. was down. Your mark was down for like a day because we uh, surpassed 100 courses. And the app that we built initially was not designed for more than 100. And we didn't realize that we were going to hit it so fast. That's like the Y2K. Jesus. Yeah. Well, so now the new one that's coming out has you know capacity for thousands. But it's funny. It's like every time you... This is how it's, it's been explained to me. Maybe maybe for developers listening, they can chime in and tell me if I'm I'm being if that's true. That you know, you the first app you build, right, is not the one that you have when you get to the Series A, which is not the one you have when you get to the Series B. Or, the, I mean, not that I'm going to go out and raise a bunch of money for anything like this, but basically, the app has to be rebuilt often to scale. The the same the th- thing you start with is not going to be able to necessarily scale with you the whole way. Like it's very, it's the same thing yeah, with I accounting with too, right? Paycheck. When I when I built view my paycheck, we you, it, like one of the things we learned really quickly is that like, you can't be emotionally tied to your code. Like we completely threw it away and wrote it from scratch at least four times, five times. Yeah, and to me, it's sort of like with accounting, where yeah, you may start with uh, QuickBooks, and then at a certain point, you're like, this is breaking. I can't do it anymore. Now I got to go to an ERP system. And then at a certain point, you go to something else. And when you grow, when you, you know, grow, you grow. Right? Yeah, you just don't you do it. You, when you grow to that point where you need to move on, well, congratulations, you have 100 episodes. 
Thank you. Thank you. And uh, congratulations to us for having like 273 episodes now. That's what we're at. That is a completely meaningless number to celebrate. We should. (laughs) Congratulations to our 273rd episode. On that note, we should let everybody go. Exactly. That's right. Have a great week, everyone. And I'll see you here next week, David. Time for the classifieds. As humans, we're programmed from birth to learn watching others. Video has the power to engage, entertain, and educate without ever feeling like work. When you want to become a QuickBooks online expert in the shortest amount of time, the Royal Wise on-demand web-based learning solutions are the obvious answer. With 40 easy-to-understand QuickBooks classes designed to bolster your confidence and increase your accuracy, Elisa Katz Pollock's training will take you from beginner to advanced user. Pick just the topics you need or save money by subscribing to their entire QuickBooks online library and coaching program for one low monthly price. Listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast can enjoy their first month of silver membership for only $1 using promo code PODCAST. So head over to learn.royalwise.com. That's royal like a king and wise like an owl. Register for a QuickBooks class, become a member for just a dollar, and make learning a hoot. That's learn.royalwise.com. If you're looking to quickly grow a scalable, systematic seven-figure accounting firm without having to work 50-plus hours per week, check out Ryan Lozanis' online coaching membership, Future Firm Accelerate. Sign around Ryan's experience taking his cloud firm from scratch to sale so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You'll get online learning and topics that help you automate and systemize all aspects of your firm. You'll get coaching when you need help with implementation. And you'll also join a collaborative community of hundreds of other forward-thinking firm owners. For more details, head over to www.futurefirmaccelerate.com. Tired of clients not remembering to get W9s? Get W9 automates and streamlines the collection and storage of W9s. Get W9 has a QBO integration and they have a partner program that pays 25% commissions. Get W9 plans start at only $19 a year. Visit getw9.tax today to get started. That is getw9.tax. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Blake, and I wanted to let you know about a new show I'm working on with CPA slash comedian Greg Kite and blogger slash former CPA Caleb Newquist. It's called Oh My Fraud, and it's a podcast all about financial crimes. That's right, a true crime podcast for accountants by accountants. Caleb and Greg are going to come together every couple weeks to unpack their favorite frauds and explore the circumstances, psychology, and interpersonal dynamics involved. They also fully indulge in victim-blaming the defrauded widows, orphans, infirm, and feeble-minded, because who can resist? If you fancy yourself a trusted advisor, or prefer your true crime with spreadsheets instead of corpses, listen to this show to learn what to watch out for and to keep your clients, your firm, and even yourself safe. To subscribe, go to ohmyfraud.com or search Oh My Fraud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.